Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Inspired by real events, two Las Vegas-based conmen dig up and steal the corpse of comedian Charlie Chaplin in order to ransom it. With the theft gaining worldwide attention and the reward rising daily, soon every local lowlife criminal and dirty cop wants a piece of the action. The film is called Stealing Chaplin, and we're joined today by the director of the film, and that would be Paul Tanter. Paul, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you very much, Mike. How are you doing? It's inspired by. And inspired so I'm curious. By. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. So was this a project that was brought to you? Uh, I see where the, the writer is uh, Doug Phillips and Simon Phillips. How did this kind of get going? So this started as um, Simon Phillips uh, came up with the idea for the story, but he based it on the actual real life events of in 1977, two brothers in Switzerland dug up and stole the corpse of Charlie Chaplin from where it was buried because he lived his, his final years in Switzerland. And for a few weeks, they had the coffin in their house and they were trying to ransom it back to the family and the police got involved. And after a few weeks, they were caught and they got sent to prison. And Chap Chaplin is now buried uh, under about 20 feet of concrete. So no one can ever try it again. <laughs> um, and when you hear that, you think that surely that can't be a real story. That's that's too fantastical. Um, and with too many elements of like bumbling idiots trying to trying to uh, ransom, a, uh, you know, possibly the most famous comedian in the world's body. Um, and so Simon had this idea for bringing it into the modern world, doing a contemporary version of it. And so uh, I've worked with Simon before numerous films. He's a producer. I worked with quite a few times. And, uh, and he got Doug Phillips, who's a writer who he's worked with before, to uh, come up with a script for us. And Doug produced a great, uh, a very cool script with lots of awesome dialogue that's a very sort of darkly comedic take on the, on the tale. And we had the idea that we would uh, we were we were trying to think of what would be the modern place that is the is the embodiment of of grifting and cons and uh, and people everyone trying to get their hands on money and we thought Vegas seemed to be like the perfect setting for it and our producer um, we you know uh, we started working with a producer based in the U.S. Ken Brezers who's uh, based in Wisconsin and Vegas yeah. and he's very connected with people there and and it was it was able to get us lots of great locations and people and vehicles and that kind of thing and we were able to produce a very low budget independent film but make it look like uh you know like a million dollar picture yeah. um and that and that was sort of the you know how we brought it to the screen you know i have a vague recollection i was old enough to have been aware of the world around me in 1977 and it, when i saw the story the synopsis of the story i said you know i do remember something about this mm. so yeah to your point uh, it is in fact it actually happened was it always going to be a comedy? Did you think that did was there any context in which this works? Why, why comedy? I think right, uh, we always like the idea of we, like, I, I've done I've done I've done dramas I've done gangster films I've done action films all that kind of thing. I think if you can tell a story and make people laugh, then you can. If you can make people laugh, then they let you in a bit uh, more yeah. and they sort of open their arms to you a bit more. And you can get in and you can do. You can do a story with a message or you can do something with drama or you can do something uh, dark and they'll kind of they'll let you in more if you're making them laugh at the same time. This is such an odd idea, and even if it is based on something in real life, 
that two people would steal a famous person's body and ransom it. That we thought there's no way we can there's no way we can do this and not have moments of darkly comic humor in it. And once you start doing that and it, and this and the words start coming onto the script, you start realizing that actually this is sort of ripe for comedic potential, darkly comedic. You know, yeah. that there's a lot of sort of uh, black humor in it. Um, but I think yeah, even from the get go, it was something that we knew we wanted to. Uh, have fun with and what's great is that Doug and Simon uh, are also um, they know each other very well and so they've got a sort of a good chemistry off screen as well which I think comes through with them as brothers on screen you know there's a great sort of vein of odd British humor running through uh, this seedy underbelly of, uh, of American crime if that makes sense yeah no they're terrific I, I really enjoyed uh, their work in this they're they're really they are funny they they bounce off of each other very well you know it's funny i was trying to think of comedy that would would sort of in terms of tonally it would reminds me of and there's a little bit of a kind of a raising arizona vibe to it, the fact that not too many yeah. people if any are all that bright in the film i mean everyone yeah. there are some exceptions but most of the people that are involved in all this are pretty much dim bulbs in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and also, kind of structurally, it reminds me a little bit of Snatch, in that right. there's other elements of people coming into the story with a completely different agenda, but at the end of the day, they're looking for the big diamond, right? I mean, in, in mm -hmm. a sense, and that's kind of they're looking for the for the the coffin. Yeah. So there's, I is that does that sound yeah. or these films that well, we would you know reference? I. I, I'll take that. I'll take that as a compliment. Uh, I think those are good references for um, uh, for inspiration uh, that we kind of had in our minds. There was so those are those are two that were actually discussed beforehand. Um, in addition to it's a mad, 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 mad world, and also Tarantino uh, Tarantino's film. Yeah, there's, there's and, and and Elmore Leonard novels. You know, we tried to have that sort of slightly um, noirish kind of feel. But yeah, I'm a, I mean, in terms of feeling sort of structurally like Snatch. I'm a huge Guy Ritchie fan, um, so if I've if I've drawn on him before, then it's through admiration for his work. But it's something that, as you say, there's a sort of ensemble of characters, all these sort yeah. of misfits and lowlifes who are who are, each of them all very you know even the even the smaller characters are all quite unique and sort of eccentric uh, characters that stand out on screen. And I think when you when you have that, you sort of populate it and you you create your own sort of little odd world in the same way that. I think when you watch a Tarantino film, you can kind of see the same similar kind of uh, eccentricities in all of the uh, in all of the characters, and and so definitely with um, uh, with Guy Ritchie Snatch as well. Yeah, I think that, that, that there's a sort of uh, a, a sort of collage of um, of inspirations for this that we try to draw on. Yeah, and again, you know, it, it is the idea of creating a world. That's I mean, that's the essence of great storytelling and good and good cinema is the to being able to create a. Uh, a world that within that world there's an internal logic the, the, the world doesn't have to it doesn't have to make sense to everyone it just has to make sense within that within that framework that you've created yeah. and yeah and they there you do introduce a fair number of different elements different people like i said with different agendas mm. but they're all after the in some way they're all after the same thing either they're after the money but that money is going to lead them to these two guys who mm. Who are the you know perpetrators? Yeah, I mean it's kind of it's it's a world that's populated by uh, a lot of shady characters who are all after the same thing. I mean, Chaplin, Chaplin in this film is essentially what 
a filmmaker calls the MacGuffin. You know, yeah. it, the, the, the coffin is the mystical object that has some value that everyone is after. And, and you know, if it's in Pulp Fiction, it's a briefcase. And, uh, and we've seen it before in lots of other things. And in this case, it happens to be Charlie Chaplin's uh, corpse. But it's what, it's what everyone is after. And it's sort of, uh, it's what leads to a, you know, um, to a caper. I, th I, I, I you think, go. you know, it's a caper movie, really. Um, and what's great is you've got all these characters who actually are quite smart, who are scheming to get it. And in the end, you've got the, the two people who really are kind of, you know, they're kind of the idiots, really. Uh, and they're the guys who don't have a plan. And yet somehow they're the guys who manage to always fall on their feet. Um, and which is, is often quite a source of comedy. Yeah. Well, that, that for me is kind of the raising Arizona reference in that yeah, these are, yeah. these are not smart people yeah, and yeah. somehow, some way they muddle through and stealing Chaplin will be available on video on demand, digital platforms and DVD starting on May 4th. So you can check this out. So it'll, Beyond a lot of the usual suspects, as I like to call them, in terms of digital platforms, so be looking for it. Are you a fan of Charlie Chaplin? Oh, you know, I mean, I'm not a sort of, uh, I'm not a diehard fan in that I grew up watching every single film, but I'm one of those people who, uh, you know, has an appreciation for his work, and, and I've seen more of them as I've, you know, as I've grown up. Uh, so yeah, like I, I have an appreciation for him as much as like, I do for. Buster Keaton and uh, you know a few more of the other Stat uh, Laurel and Hardy stuff. kind of yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and um, and obviously I watched a, you know more of his stuff uh, when we were coming up to this because we even reference we have uh, clips of his films in it as well and also one thing that Doug did as, uh, when writing it as a sort of um, tribute to his work was to Easter egg in um, character names so a lot of the characters are either named after characters in Chaplin's work or after you know other silent movie era stars you know we sort of drop those things in there yeah yeah very good very good the production it's uh it's it looks like you were in a lot of locations a lot of you know you were outside you were inside you were at night you were in the daytime how many shooting days 10 shooting days in total so no no seriously 10 shooting days so uh 10 days 12 hours each day with an hour break but very meticulously pre-planned pre uh, in pre-production. I don't tend to use shot lists, but I'm, I tend I know what I want from the scene, you know, before we're there on set. Uh, and, but also, not locking myself to shot lists allows me to a bit of um, freedom to, you know, to move quicker and, and to improvise if something gets thrown up where, uh, you know, where you can't do the thing that you wanted to do. So yes, in total, it was ten shooting days, but we had access to a lot of locations yeah. and things that make us feel and look more expensive than we are. So it's a, it is a low budget indie movie, but it looks and feels 10 times more expensive than it actually is. So, you know, yeah, the, the fact that you're surprised that it was shot in 10 days, I'll take as a compliment because, you know, I, I do think that when you watch it, it does, it, it, you know, it's very polished and it's uh, and it looks and feels like a sort of mid budget movie, but no, no I mean like, uh, if you if someone else might spend three to five million dollars and and shoot for six weeks and make the same movie, but you know uh, we, we've been doing this for a while now, so we sort of managed to get into a a decent groove of being able to shoot things quickly, but you know, but make them look good, but also make sure the small amount of money that we do have is up there on the screen. Yeah, I, again, that's shocking. Most most times I ask that question, it's 20, 25 days. So yeah. I'm kind of curious what your budget was for jetpacks. What did you spend on jetpacks? 
Yeah. Um, I, you know what? I'm going to have jetpacks in the next one. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to, to say what the actual full budget for the movie was, but it no. was, it was, it, if, if, if you watch this movie and you have an idea in, in mind, probably knock a zero off that and you're nearer <laughs> to what we actually were. But we have, like, our, our, our producer, Ken Brezzers, who's based in Vegas, is so connected to locations and people there and that kind of thing that we were able to get, you know, locations that would cost thousands of dollars and, you know, picture vehicles that we got for free from his friends and that kind of thing. And that way we're able to actually, you know, we're able to spend the money in the right places. And that when you do that, the film looks and feels a, a lot more than the sum of its parts. Definitely pays to have friends, you know, friends, oh, yes, that, that yeah. kind of thing. Well, well yeah. I'm looking at some of your past work. Um, you've been a producer in a number, executive producer on a number of your projects. And is is that did that I'm certain that helped you in, in getting this film done, knowing mm. intimately what it was oh, going to yeah. be required in these locations? I'm because I'm thinking of the strip club, you know, the apartment, the you know, the graveyard, the the mm. desert. The there's just an uh, the workplace, the cafe. Yeah, there's a yeah. lot of places here. Yeah. Oh, so on a on a movie uh, on a low budget indie movie, lots of people have to wear more than one hat so you'll yeah. find you know like uh yeah people are usually doing more than one job and in a lot of my films i tend to work as on them as a producer as well as a director sometimes as a writer as well but if you do the job of a producer or you have ever done the job of a producer it gives you an understanding and appreciation of yeah. of their needs as well as your needs creatively as a director so i can as a director say well we need this thing that is very expensive but then I can then put my producer hat on and say, well, you can't have it because we don't have the money for it. So now I go back to being a director and go, right, what can I do creatively to still make this look and feel expensive, but not break the bank with it? And so often when we're writing a script, you know, when we're, if we write, you know, if I'm writing it myself or if we've hired a writer to write it for us, then we know the limitations in advance. So we don't overreach ourselves with the script. So quite often you can find that um, if you, a first-time writer or an early early career writer will stretch the will stretch the limits of the script too far beyond the budget that is available, and then you have to change it later on, and then it becomes something totally different. So we know from the start that we, it's going to be a tight budget, and we plan accordingly. And then when we're shooting, I know that as well, and I also know that that there's going to be a strict time um, you know uh, limit as well. So I'm able to work around that. And what that does often is it forces you to be creative. You have to come up with good, fresh ideas and ways to make things look interesting. And, and it, yeah, and it sort of gives a bit of people a bit of an energy as well. So actors arrive to set knowing that if they, you know, that they need to have everything in their head because uh, I need people to be moving quick, 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 you know. Well, I assume then what we're talking about as well as having a, a cinematographer that, that pretty much you can telepathically tell what, what you want. And so, and is that, I mean, cinematographers, yeah. and especially in this kind of a situation, have yeah, to be. Definitely, definitely. I mean, uh, so the cinematographer for this, Corey Warner, I've worked yeah. with before on a TV show. And yeah, he's very good at, uh, uh, um, yeah, I don't have to say too much to him to tell him what I want and need. But also the key thing is that he's one of those DPs who, when he says this will take 20 minutes to light, he, he'll get it done in 20 minutes. Well, he doesn't mean, you know, uh, he, he won't be there an hour later going, yeah, I just, you know, I need, I need to move a few things. Um, actually, he's very good at doing it quickly, but still making it look cinematic. Yeah. And that's what you want. I will say you, you mentioned earlier, you know, things like um, 
all of the locations. So a lot of the locations our producer Ken got for us, such as the strip club and the um, the diner and uh, various things like that. There were a couple of things that we managed to kind of guerrilla on the fly. So um, uh, Fremont Street, uh, we left until the last night of filming, mainly because we knew that that way, if we did get arrested, it wouldn't it wouldn't impact the following day because we weren't filming the following day. So we we literally went down there on the final night of shooting and shot the stuff that you see at the beginning of the movie, yep. Doug and Simon dressed in Chaplin uh, costumes. And that was, we we didn't have permits, but we went down there and the place was filled with people. And two people dressed as chaplains is not the weirdest thing that you see down there. So they kind of weren't really bothered by people. They went down there and a few people, um, one, one lady who worked there came up to them and thought they were collecting for charity and said, what are you doing? And Simon said, oh, we're here on a uh, stag do, which is the British uh, version of... Um, uh, bachelor uh, night yeah. so we we have to do this uh, this is like a bet and she went okay and then left um, and so we managed to shoot what we needed in about sort of you know, 20 minutes and then just as we were finishing I saw security those security guys who wear uniforms that look like police but they're not really police but they're designed to make you think they're police they were coming towards me um, with their uh, you know their tasers and their flashlights on their belts and I knew it was time to get out of there at that point because they were you know wanting to see permits and things but the other thing we managed to get in terms of location was we were supposed to be shooting at a cemetery um, that we had booked. And then it pulled out on us because they didn't want us digging a, uh, they didn't want us, it, it to be looking like we were digging a, a upper coffin out of their cemetery in the middle of the night. And so when we were shooting with Wayne Newton, we told him this. Uh, he said, how's it going? How's filming? And we said, well, look, we, you know, we just lost this cemetery. We're supposed to be filming there in two days. And he said, oh, come and look at my backyard. You can film it there. And we said, look, I think a backyard is a little bit too small to be shooting a this scene in. And he said, and he said, look, come and see my backyard, okay? And once you've seen it, if you think it's not suitable, no worries, you can, you know, keep looking. And so that night after we'd filmed, we went to his place, and his backyard is a 27-acre plush green with, uh, you know, green lawns and trees and a stream running through it. It's like an Arabian horse farm. He he breeds stud horses. Uh, in the middle it's it's like almost an entire city block in the middle of vegas and he said would this be suitable and yes yes wayne this would be suitable <laughs> and so and so two nights later we went there and we dressed in some fake gravestones and wayne newton who is the nicest guy in the world bless him let us dig a very deep hole a grave in the middle of his perfectly manicured lawn um, and we shot there all through the night and uh, and his wife cat came and filled in for us with a role that we needed someone to do at the last minute. She played the, the um, news reporter who reports yeah. uh, the, uh, from the cemetery and their, and, uh, and their daughter Lauren came and played the sort of surly waitress in the diner. So there was a whole Newton family thing and they were just so fantastic and accommodating. Um, so that was such a blessing. Um, and it's the kind of thing that really, you know, only happens at the last minute on an, on an indie feature. Suddenly someone comes in and they've got the perfect location for you and he didn't charge us for it either. That's awesome. That's a great story. And yes, I was going to mention that Wayne Newton is in the film and uh, he has particular uh, libation that he's very fond of that we find out about in the film. And yeah. it's pretty fun. We, we are talking with the director of the film. It's called uh, Stealing Chaplin, and that would be Paul Tanter. I see that I'm and I may be overstating this, but in your background uh, as a filmmaker, it looks like you've done a fair number of horror films in your yeah now i hear from a lot of filmmakers over the course of the time i've been doing the show that 
it's a great training ground for um, for filmmakers for people who want to direct and that you really have to have an imagination you really have to be able to create things out of not a whole lot of money or resources is that a fair statement from your experience i would say it's i, I would say that's a fair statement in my case uh every film is a training ground uh, but also most of the films that i work on have very low budgets anyway so i'm always forced to try and be as ingenious as possible to you know make resources stretch further and so forth most of my early films tended to be gangster films and uh, films about hooligans. Hooligan films are quite big in the UK, or they were a few years ago. And th those were the things that I sort of cut my teeth on. But the same thing still applies. You still have to be creative and inventive and try to come up with new ways of doing things. And then later on in, in more recent years, I've done a few horror films, uh, but you still methods of trying to be creative as possible and so forth because even the films that i even the horror films that i was doing 10 years into my career were still very low budget so yeah i guess the same thing does still apply the film is called stealing chaplain and it is it's a fun watch and uh be looking for it on may 4th it'll be out on video on demand and all the digital platforms and also in dvd release so check it out Stealing Chaplin. We've been talking with the director of the film, and that would be Paul Tanter. Paul, thank you so much for spending some time with us here on Film School Radio. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Cheers, Mike. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Music